Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's A-Side of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. My co-host, Amy, couldn't join us for this week's interview, but have no fear. She'll be back for the B-Side that's going to be airing later this week. Joining us for today is Joe Burns. He's a lifelong trade union organizer and contract negotiator in the healthcare sector and the airline industry. And most importantly for today's discussion, he's the author of a recent book. It's called Strike Back, Using the Militant Tactics of Labor's Past to Reignite Public Sector Unionism Today. And in that book, Joe Burns unveils the story of how public trade unions got the power that they have today through militant and often unlawful strike activity in the 1960s and 70s. But we'll go into that in far more detail in the course of the interview. Before we get to that... We need your support, everybody. I know you hear this pitch from nearly every podcast you listen to, but if you like what you hear on Dead Pundit Society and you want to keep this project going, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe. For $5 or more per month, you'll get access to our second weekly show. We call it The B-Side. It's available to patrons only. We save some of our hottest hot takes uh, for that particular episode because we know that our patrons are well prepared to handle them. In any case, support the New Left Agenda. You'll get a little something for it. And uh, we have some plans to expand in the very near future. We're going to be producing some video content. We're going to be producing more podcasts on more topics with more co-hosts and so on and so forth. We see an upsurge in left-wing and socialist politics on the horizon, and we want to be prepared to meet that challenge. So you can help us do that by heading over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and joining the society. All right, enough of me. Let's get on with the interview with Joe Burns. Enjoy. Instead of in front of schools, Friday, Tumwater teachers picketed at the county courthouse and they packed the courtroom. It's not to supervise bargaining, but it is to stop the tactic that is being used as an economic weapon. The Tumwater School District sued on the grounds that public employees cannot strike and the strike is causing substantial and irreparable harm. The district says thanks to the strike, students aren't being educated. Those who rely on free meals at school have to look elsewhere, and parents are inconvenienced. Well, I would think the union's attorney says canceling three days of school so far has not caused substantial harm. We can handle it probably for a while. It's only at some point in the future where there's actually proof, potentially, of a continuing strike that you may reach a finding that there is substantial harm. The strike is illegal. While Thurston County Judge Chris Lanise agreed the strike is against the law, he was not convinced it's causing substantial harm. So he did not order teachers back to their classrooms. But he wants the district to come back to his courtroom next Wednesday with more proof. While the two sides plan to return to court next week, in the meantime, their negotiations continue. Joining me on the line today is Joe Burns. Joe is director of collective bargaining at the Association of Flight Attendants. He's also the author of Reviving the Strike, How Working People Can Regain Power and Transform America. And additionally, he's the author of the book we're going to be discussing more explicitly today. It's called Strike Back, Using the Militant Tactics of Labor's Past to Reignite Public Sector Unionism Today. Joe Burns, thanks so much for joining us today on Dead Pundit Society. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. 
So tell our listeners a little bit about your past. Uh, you have an extensive history in the labor movement, and it definitely informs the work that you that you bring to bear in, the, in your two books. And uh, it'll definitely be apparent to anyone who happens to peruse the Strike Back book. So tell us a little bit about your history just to get us going here. Yeah, so I grew up in North Minneapolis, and you know, I guess I didn't really realize it at the time, but the strike had made possible an entire way of life for folks in my neighborhood. You know, a lot of folks were union members, but they were able to, you know, send their kids to college, to afford cabins, even. But anyway, so subsequently, I went to the University of Minnesota, became more of an activist. Uh, following graduation, I became a hospital worker and healthcare worker for about 10 years. I was local union president with a public employee union, AFSCME, at the University of Minnesota Hospital. In that capacity, I did a lot of bargaining, uh, bargained three contracts, and also did a lot of strike support for a lot of the national strikes that were going on. Subsequently, I went to the law school at NYU, uh, continued to work for unions, and following law school, I bargained in the healthcare industry for a number of years and then eventually uh, ended up with the Association of Flight Attendants. And for over 15 years, I've uh, been with AFA mm -hmm. and negotiating contracts in the airline industry. I've negotiated a lot of the major contracts, uh, pretty much bargain full time. And then more recently, I'm the director of collective bargaining. Um, so that's really kind of my sort of uh, work background in terms of unionism. Fantastic. So you come from the old school, you worked yourself up from the rank and file. Now you find yourself director of collective bargaining. So a lot of experience there to draw from for this conversation. Let's rewind and talk to us a little bit about your first book. And in some senses, folks might consider it the private sector compendium to strike back, which is more explicitly about public sector unions. So tell us a little bit about um, you know, your, your impulses behind writing uh, that book, Reviving the Strike, and the argument that you were making there. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I had a lot of union experience before I went to law school, but really in law school, I began to see labor laws, what I call in reviving the strike as more of a system of labor control. So rather than something that was ineffectively supporting union activity, it had evolved over the years to restrict trade unionism. So at that point, I really started to think about writing the book, but you know, it, it took a number of years before I really sat down and did it. And eventually it ended up with Reviving the Strike, which was published in 2011. And I think the main impetus for writing that book was that at that time, I mean, now a lot of people are talking about a strike. A lot of people on the left of the labor movement realize the importance of striking. Mm -hmm. But back in the early 2000s, hardly anyone was talking about striking. That's right. This That's was right. before the Chicago teacher strike. This was, it really represented a period where a lot of the trade union movement, including the left of the trade union movement, had abandoned the strike. Right. They were more in favor of a kind of a managerial approach to bargaining, a lot of lawyers, a lot of backroom dealings and that type of thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think there was that, but there was also a lot of uh, the progressives in the labor movement, you know, after the 1980s, you know, where there were a lot of strikes that were busted because striking workers were permanently replaced by scabs and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of militant fightbacks. A lot of people shifted towards that we needed to organize the unorganized that we needed to do corporate campaigns, which are these campaigns where you target banks and other business allies, and a lot of it's staff-driven. So anyway, there were a lot of you know good energy and ideas about what we needed to do to revive the labor movement. But I began to feel that 
in doing so, we had just sort of abandoned the fundamentals of trade unionism. Right, right. And that's really the core of reviving the strike. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, clear from the title that the strike for 150 years was really the hallmark of trade unionism. And, you know, it's really how we won our unions. It's how we built a powerful labor movement in the 1930s and beyond, where workers used to strike at very high numbers. And then what we see is that sort of declining throughout the 80s. But then when you hit the 90s, you have this massive drop up of strike activity and everyone's sitting there trying to figure out how are we going to revive the labor movement? And I'm like, well, the question is, how are we going to revive the strike? Because when you have a powerful strike, then you can have a powerful labor movement. So that was really the the book, uh, Reviving the Strike. Mm -hmm. And I think it was very, I think, timely. It was right before the Chicago teachers strike. And I think it really helped with sort of the development of a reorientation towards the strike that began to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the timing there couldn't have been any better with Scott Walker's uh, repression in Wisconsin and the rallying at the Capitol in Madison. And of course, that ended with a bitter taste in our mouths, I would say, as part of the left and the labor movements. Uh, but what was taken up in earnest uh, in, in more recent teacher strikes across the United States. And we'll come up to the present in just a moment. But thanks for that background. That was very useful. But we're going to rewind all the way back to the early 1900s, because that's where you begin your book. A lot of people see the strength of the relative strength, I should say, of public sector unions as opposed to private sector unions today. And they presume that that might have always been the case. But you tell a very different story. At one point in time, private sector unions were certainly relatively far more disempowered than private sector unions. So start us in the early 1900s in the story that you begin with your book about uh, certain upsurges and failures and fits and starts of the public sector trade union movement. Yeah. So, I mean, prior to the 1960s, the Public sector unions were a relatively small part of the labor movement. During this period, you know, no one really believed that public sector unions had the right to strike. And when they did strike, it was more kind of protest of grievances that they had Mm -hmm. rather than, in general, uh, an organized approach that they had the right as workers uh, to bargain and strike. There were a couple of notable counterexamples when the Boston police went out on strike in uh, 1919. That strike ended up being crushed. Everyone, you know, the media was all aghast that they would dare to strike mm-hmm. and basically uh, repressed and, 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 and fired them and really kind of crushed police unionism and then following that pretty much public employee unionism. By the time you get to the 1950s, you have public employee unions really weak and they didn't have exclusive representation where they represented all the workers. They didn't have really of formalized collective bargaining laws, they would really be like a voluntary association and they would end up begging to the school board. They might show up to the school board and and plead their case, Mm -hmm. but they really had little to offer in the way of attracting public sector workers. And they didn't believe in the right to strike themselves. Um, Most of the public employee unions had prohibitions in their constitutions against striking. And the ones that didn't had unofficial policies against it. So, in fact, there were only a handful of strikes in 1958. 
and throughout the 1950s of public sector workers. Right. If I might just interject there, I think it, you, you trace a really interesting kind of uh, development here through the book. And I think we might take it for granted that public sector workers are workers and they have the right to strike. They have the right to bargain. They are workers just as much, if not, you know, in today's census, sort of like more proudly so than private sector workers, which have, who, have, who have been beaten down over the past 50 or 60 some odd years. Uh, but the, the history you trace here sort of demonstrates that public sector workers were not even necessarily seen as workers as such in so much as servants, right? It almost kind of goes back to a kind of a civil service tradition because the fact that the police officers in 1919 in Boston would even go on strike at all. It was unthinkable. You know, President at the time, Calvin Coolidge, uh, famously claimed there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. So the, the, the idea was that these public sector workers were, were public servants. They are there to, to uphold uh, the public good and public safety, and they have no right to strike against their mission as, as workers. And as you raise in your book, Coolidge's quote there was, was used uh, by some during the Chicago Teachers Union strike all the way up to 2012. So I think uh, maintaining that distance and that identity as workers uh, for public sector unions has definitely not always been status quo, for sure. I think that was one of my most uh, interesting takeaways from your book. Yeah, and, and precisely. I mean, that was really a prevailing philosophy was that public employee unionism was illegitimate. There was a whole host of ideas and theories that were used to back that up by those who opposed public employee unionism. One is you couldn't be electing your boss. So how could public employees uh, bargain when they're, you know, sort of electing the people that they're bargaining against? Mm. There was also these notions of sovereignty that, you know, the legislature cannot delegate their power and so forth. And all of, the, all of these ideas were frankly quite ridiculous, um, especially in today's day and age where the governments and, the, and those who want to privatize everything, they privatize out public service all the time right. and contracts all the time. And they negotiate business contracts. There's millions and millions of contracts with different agencies of government. I mean, look at the military spending in the military industrial complex, and they delegate out entire areas, areas of road building and so forth. So to say that businesses can do it and everyone else can do it, but somehow it's a violation of sovereignty when uh, public workers do it is just hypocritical and, and it really doesn't pass muster as an argument in my mind. Right. Well put, well put. So as I interrupted you there, you were just about to lay out the post-World War II strike wave uh, that occurred in which the public sector trade unions, at least for a moment, were able to gain some militancy. Yeah. So, I mean, look, at workers tend to strike in waves. I think we see that currently with the teacher strikes going on with the red states teachers and spreading over to Washington state. And that's true historically is that when workers see other workers striking and especially when they do it successfully and inspires them to take action and they learn from each other. That's why, you know, a lot of the great gains in labor history have come through these sort of strike waves. And, you know, there were quite a few uh, public sector workers who struck immediately following World War II, which is one of the great strike waves of U.S. history with, you know, where you had hundreds of thousands of industrial and other workers going out at the same time, or millions, actually. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was, you know, some degree of public employees getting swept up in that strike wave. But that soon subsided, and it wasn't until the late 1950s where public sector workers and particularly teachers in New York City 
you know, began, you know, sort of questioning this. And they saw at that time a very powerful labor movement that had pensions and healthcare and vacation and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they began to organize and mobilize. And New York teachers went out on a one-day strike in 1960, and it was very successful. It was the day before their election. And even though, you know, a small fraction of the workforce went out, they were able to really force the city to uh, recognize them. And, you know, following that with a strike a couple years later, we're able to, uh, you know, win exclusive representation and struck throughout the 1960s and really transformed teaching from what entering the 1960s was really a low-wage job Mm -hmm. uh, into a career. And doing so, they sparked a sort of public sector rebellion that brought millions of public sector workers into the labor movement. Right. I think from our vantage point, uh, particularly as a millennial and millennial adjacent audience uh, that I have in Generation X and, and some some boomers in there as well. But uh, I think I want to spell out for my audience just how improbable that success and that labor militancy was in the public sector uh, trade unions uh, in terms of the kind of repression that they faced. So let's back up just a hair there and set the stage uh, for the kind of moment that they they were facing in the late 50s and 60s when they started to have some success. So the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947 eliminated a lot of the types of tactics and uh, sort of structural you know, capacities of trade unions to be very militant and successful. And that was that was also echoed in the public sector as well. Uh, one example you cite that's been made newly relevant in recent political debates is the Condon-Wadlin Act in New York State, uh, which had incredibly repressive regulations against public sector workers, in particular teachers, which basically, I would say, ended formal uh, public sector strikes in New York State for a time. Uh, That's newly relevant because uh, would-be New York State uh, Democratic nominee Cynthia Nixon, who was recently defeated by Cuomo in the primaries, uh, she vowed to strike down the Condon-Wadlin Act. So it's now back on the playing field, uh, so to speak. But that's the context for the 1960s and 1970s and the kind of upsurge that they had in, in founding the success of public sector unions going forward. You, you trace in your book a number of factors that sort of converged to provide the conditions for success in the 1960s public sector trade unions. Some of those are the civil rights movements, the social movements that were robust. They kind of all came together to form a critical mass that you seem to point to as a lesson for today's future. Give us some of those uh, factors of their success in the 1960s. Yeah, well, I mean, look, at um, in the 1960s, you had the federal government and government employment in general expanding. You had public education with a lot of the baby boomer kids and so forth rapidly expanded. You had social movements that were beginning and developing throughout the 1960s. Mm-hmm. The women's movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and a lot of these youth who uh, became radicalized at college uh, went off into uh, become teachers or social workers, sanitation workers. Uh, many uh, African-American sanitation workers were infused with the civil rights uh, protests of the era. So mm-hmm. all of this uh, really came together to uh, help provide the material basis for the public employee upsurge. Um, right. And going back to the point on the uh, on the repression, it's really incredible when you think about it, because um, 
striking was illegal for public employees in every jurisdiction in the United States, including the federal government, throughout the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And in many states, there were repressive laws that said that workers could be fired or fined for striking. And in some states, a felony to uh, strike and strike leaders could and in fact did go to jail mm-hmm. for uh, leading strikes. Yet despite that, millions of public workers struck anyway. And it was quite incredible. And it's really, when you think about it, it's one of the great campaigns of civil disobedience in the United States history, although people don't really think about it that way. Right, right. And in, by striking illegally, that's how they won their unions. That's how they won their contracts. And that's how, by the mid-1970s, you ended up with 40% of public workers in unions. And it was all because of this sort of grassroots militancy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. It's interesting how this enters the public uh, memory, you know, this how this registers in, in, in popular history. And a lot of us will remember the heroic black workers walking picket lines with the signs in, in Memphis uh, saying, I am a man, you know, and this is now on a postage stamp, right? You know, as a critical, pivotal moment in the civil rights movement, but very few will remember the component of that particular era, which, you know, these were labor infused protests. The anger was uh, channeled by, in, and through Ask Me Local uh, 1733 there in Memphis. It was instrumental in in making that uh, convergence of civil rights and and, and trade union rights possible. And so why is it, do you think that uh, the public sector militancy of this moment has been somewhat erased from this legacy, from this history, which is you know, obviously one of the impetuses of uh, you writing this book in the first place. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I was a public employee union leader really active in the 1990s. And when you think about it, you know, it was only 20 years before that we won formal bargaining rights in Minnesota. But even by the 1990s, no one in our union talked about that history. And I had no idea that the reason that we had bargaining in Minnesota was because of illegal strikes by teachers and others. And I think by the 1990s, a lot of public employee unions had really abandoned the strike and were really sort of looking at electing Democratic politicians and so forth. So they weren't really interested in the history of militancy. And then professional labor historians covered other periods. There's a lot of books when you're writing about strikes and strike waves of the 1930s. But when I was writing Strike Back, there weren't like a ton of books that you could find uh, on strike waves. It was a little bit more challenging than when I was writing Reviving the Strike, where there's tons of books about the strike wave of the 1930s. Right. And compare that as a scholar myself, you compare that with the shelves and shelves and shelves of library books that cover the the certain the civil rights component of that particular moment. It's very interesting how the, the labor militancy of, of the civil rights movement has been largely ignored in the scholarly literature and the popular histories uh, that, that evolved from that moment. So there seems to be a kind of impulse of like active repression almost not to get you know conspiratorial here, but it just seems to be blatant. That, that there's a certain kind of uh, suppression of the labor component of that history. So it's not surprising, uh, in a sense, that uh, some of the more uh, progressive-minded uh, political thinkers or, or you know, uh, folks in the country uh, will be in very, very progressive, what we millennials call woke. They'll be very woke to issues of racial oppression, gender oppression, sexual uh, repression, and, and uh, all, all these types of things. 
but the importance of the the trade union movement in history uh, somehow fails to register in their sort of political calculus or or their political vision of today. Um, so that's something we want to kind of tackle here as well. So take us up. You talk about some of the successes in the 1960s and 70s, but the PATCO strike in 81 was certainly a very pivotal moment in, in a different kind of sense. Uh, take us up to the PATCO strike and, and kind of set the stage for for what that was and, and what the significance of that moment was uh, going forward to the 80s and 90s. Yeah. So the PATCO strike really, you know, the story really starts in the 1960s mm-hmm. and Professor Joe McCartan wrote a really great book. He's written a lot of uh, uh, on public employee unionism, mm-hmm. but he wrote the book on the PACO strike, which really traces their development. And it's really quite fascinating that beginning in the 1960s, air traffic controllers, um, and a lot of them came from military backgrounds. They used to work for the military, uh, you know, sort of control. Mm-hmm. And then they came over to become uh, the civilian air traffic controller at a time when it was, again, rapidly expanding, you know, sort of uh, aviation in this country. And they developed throughout the 1960s and 70s as one of the most militant federal unions. Despite prohibitions and the fact that they couldn't strike, they engaged in sick outs. And a lot of times people got fired, but then they were able to get folks back to work a couple of years later. And there's a lot of interesting stories about how you build, you know, sort of workplace actions there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think as a union, uh, they were also uh, mixed. Uh, they weren't part of the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up uh, endorsing Ronald Reagan for president and and sort of playing both sides of the fence had been something that they had done previously. Right. Um, and they endorsed Reagan and they actually negotiated what was a leading contract for federal workers under the federal labor law. Uh, the employer doesn't have to bargain wages, but they, nonetheless, they were able to get wage increases and so forth. But, you know, I think the workers at the time were pretty militant after being pushed around for years and rejected the agreement. Um, and 10,000 air traffic controllers end up going out on strike. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things to point out, you know, I think a lot of folks view this as, uh, you know, just Ronald Reagan and the Republicans. But a lot of the plans and frustrations and, and the sort of contingency plans to get rid of them were worked up under the Carter administration. Right, right. And I think when you look at uh, Joe McCartan, he's written some articles about how the sort of permanent replacement and firing of public workers didn't start with Ronald Reagan, that there were examples such as Atlanta uh, in 76, 77. Mm-hmm where Democratic mayors ended up firing public sector workers and really setting the stage. But nonetheless, it's viewed as one of the most pivotal moments of labor history, not just for public sector workers, but really for private sector workers. He fired the aircraft controllers, brought in the scabs, the military, and then trained an entire new workforce. Mm-hmm. And many or most of these workers never got their jobs back. And that really is seen as, you know, sort of a green light for going after unions in the 1980s in terms of employers using permanent replacement um, where they it's like they technically don't fire them, but they permanently give away their job. So it's Mm -hmm. in some ways a distinction without a difference. And also for the public sector, um, what you saw following that was a drastic decline in strike activity. 
Yeah. Although you mentioned that there was some, you know, minority strike activity or strike-ish activity going on in PATCO uh, through the 1960s and 70s, I think we really can't overemphasize the fact that PATCO was a very improbable union to face the ire, to become the the poster child in some senses, because of, like you mentioned, at least uh, the pedigree of many of these people would have been seen as very sympathetic to anyone in the federal government, to the, anyone in the Reagan coalition. A lot of these folks were former military. Many of them were socially conservative, I would say. At least that was the sort of image that they projected. And uh, I've sort of stolen this in some senses from other commentators and analysts. But in, in the same way that only Nixon could go to China, you might say only Reagan could have busted Patco in terms of the way that it, it had a chilling effect on the public sector trade union in that moment. Um, but what's your take on that? Do you typically agree with that sentiment? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I do think that they were core to their development was militancy. Yeah. And that's the only reason they existed as a union was this sort of long series of illegal strikes. Mm-hmm. And some of those were like, I think their first strike, uh, Joe McCartan talks about, was announced on the Johnny Carson show um, because huh. F. Lee Bailey, who folks who don't know him, um, back in the 60s and 70s, he was like the celebrity lawyer, uh-huh. you know, yeah. w- well known and but also an aviation enthusiast. And so was uh, Johnny Carson. So they uh, it, it was alleged that he had some coded message that the strike was beginning on the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, I think that history of militancy, you know, led them to believe that they had always been able to get away with it before mm. so they could get away with it now. And, and and they had been able to, you know, sort of even if folks did get fired to play both sides of the fence. And, you know, I agree with the comments about them being conservative and I don't think they expected it. But I think the point is they didn't realize that the ground had shifted uh, beneath their feet Right. right. at the sort of rise of the neoconservative movement in the 1970s, a lot of it was based on bashing public employees and really posed some pressure and and a push within the coalition that brought Reagan to power Mm -hmm. to take them on. And they ended up being in the crosshairs. The fact that they had isolated themselves from the labor movement. Uh, Right. Yeah. And the labor movement was just so friggin' horrible back then in terms of, you know, conservative and Mm -hmm. uh, crushing militancy that um, even if they had been more involved, I doubt they would have helped. But the fact that they were endorsing Reagan and just so outside of the labor movement didn't help them. That was the legacy of George Meany's AFL, you might say, uh, the, the more socially conservative, the yeah, difficult moment there. I think, as you, you mentioned, the, the sort of ground shifting underneath their feet and not realizing the political terrain had shifted, uh, you know, the PAC co-workers, that is. It reminds me of a, a quip that Adolf Reed Jr. made on my show a couple of appearances ago. He said something to the effect of, uh, you, might, you might identify with this yourself. He said, you know, we didn't realize it was the 1970s until it was over. Which is to say, you know, that we look back on the history of the 1970s as this kind of promising, really kind of militant uh, moment in some senses where there was an opportunity to go in a different direction. But a lot of folks didn't realize that the moment was what it was until it had passed. And it, by then it was too late. And a lot of people were caught unaware in the, in the early 80s when the uh, hammer began to fall on a lot of different people. But anyway, let's take this conversation up through the 90s. Uh, one of your most, I think, strident and important critiques in this book goes against the turn that uh, trade unionism sort of took, uh, given the defeats of the 80s. And uh, the way you characterize this is a kind of fuzzy social movement unionism. 
So make that distinction for us, because I think one of the big, uh, you know, the hot topics of today, people are looking at the successes of the Chicago teachers and the teacher strikes across the country in the past year, and they, they see these as victories for a certain kind of social movement unionism. So define that for us and then talk about the kind of fuzzy social movement unionism and the distinction that you're trying to make there. Yeah, I, I think lately a lot of the teachers unions and so forth have you know discovered that they need to sort of have a broader agenda in their trade unionism and really be seen as, as they are, as representing the public and fighting about issues of broad concern and not just narrow issues of their wages and so forth. I think there was a period of time, and really in particular with the private sector, you know, probably about 10 years ago or so, that you know after folks had abandoned the strike and then the corporate campaigns were supposed to save us and that didn't really work. And then mm-hmm. we spent billions of dollars literally trying to organize the unorganized, but found that workers didn't want to join a weak and declining labor movement. And, you know, following that, you know, folks, especially in the private sector, started saying, well, what we need is social unions and we need to, you know, represent the public and so forth. And I think that's all fine and it's great, but, you know, it doesn't really substitute for, you know, a sort of powerful worker led strikes and militancy. And what we found is that in a lot of instances, what was called social unionism was really the staff of unions meeting with the staff of nonprofits <laughs> and, you know, sitting in a room during the workday. Yeah. And it really didn't involve workers. And that was quite different than the sort of deep worker led aspects of social unionism. Because when, when you really think about it, public employees and I find, and I think the, the writers who study it find, left to their own devices, the issues they care about really are about the public concerns. Teachers care about public education and mm-hmm. students. And one of the interesting things I found is that before all these laws regulating bargaining, when everything was illegal, if everything's illegal, you can do whatever you want. That's true. And when folks bargained contracts back in the 1960s, like the Chicago teachers back then when they struck, some of their demands that they won were after-school programs for kids. Hmm. And uh, social workers in New York City, one of the great examples was this militant independent social workers union in New York City in 65, 66. And they won in their union contract that there had to be $200 emergency grants uh, for welfare recipients. Wow. So those were the kinds of things that left to their own devices. And really, when you saw the Chicago teachers strike, you know, back in uh, 2011, 12, they were restricted from bargaining over things like uh, classroom sizes and so forth and staffing. Uh, There were even special laws that, that restricted them out of all teachers in the state. So they had to really kind of, you know, play both sides of the fence in terms of that's what they were really striking about, but certain people couldn't say it. Anyway, the point being, there's a lot of examples where, you know, public employees built at the grassroots level, this really strong social unionism, whether it be the sanitation workers in the South or, you know, various other examples. And that really is different. And it's what we need is it, it has to be tied with worker activism. Otherwise, it just becomes another staff-driven pretend that we're really having, you know, the social movement, but we're not. 
Right. So it seems that there's this convergence in, in this uh, fuzzy social movement unionism that you speak to. There's this convergence of this kind of staff driven top down with a kind of, um, I don't know, ideological cover of this kind of uh, traditional Saul Alinsky community organizing model, right? That we're going to go door to door. We're going to get the community involved. That's the sort of facade that's put up. Maybe this would be a good time to talk about the movements like Fight for 15 in the way that they've been uh, carried out. Uh, these are oftentimes championed by people, uh, you know, on the left, people who are in favor of unions these days. But they have some some difficulties in terms of how they end up being uh, sort of rolled out in practice. Uh, but, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of good there and there's a lot of bad there, I would say. What, what's your take on Fight for 15 and how does that fit into the kind of uh, this 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 contradiction between, you know, staff driven versus uh, grassroots deep organizing? You know, I mean, it's it's one of those things that that is uh, mixed. Right. On the one hand, when we started to see the fast food strikes back in, uh, I don't know if it was like 2012 or so, yeah, uh, 13, you know, in that in that sort of period, it was good because you saw that folks embracing, in my opinion, correctly, that in order to organize entire industries, we would have to look at the strike to do it. No one else was going to do it for us. Um, labor law wasn't going to help us. So folks started looking at the strikes. So in that sense, it was good. It focused attention, just like the folks calling for general strikes and so forth. At least they're talking about striking. <laughs> the problem becomes when you have these initiatives that are really driven by national organizations and staff and really aren't coming out of the workplace. And many of these so-called strikes, it's really hard to find many workers actually striking. Yeah, right. A lot of these nationwide strikes might have had a handful of restaurant workers striking, sort of on a similar vein, folks, you know, calling for general strikes like out in Oakland. And then I think one of the labor commentators, Cal Winslow, said, you know, he didn't know of a single worker who had actually gone on strike that day. So how can yeah. that be called a strike? Right. I mean, I, even a successful strike that recently in the uh, communication workers, the Verizon strike that happened uh, last year, you know, I, I remember myself in my in my community, I had, to, I had to go to four or five different Verizon stores before I found a picket line. The other Verizon stores were going on business as usual. Uh, you know, and, and we consider that a, it was, in some senses, a very successful action. Uh, but I think you're right to to note the the way that that plays out in the PR versus the way it's sort of manifested in the actual workplaces themselves. Yeah, and I mean, if you contrast that to the teacher strikes in the red states, you know, where you have thousands and thousands of teachers going out on strike, tens of thousands in a given state, you know, that's obviously a fundamentally different phenomenon. You know, so I think the fight for 15 ended up being a bit more about using strikes to sort of uh, advance certain legislative campaigns and, and initiatives. And I'm not saying any of that's bad. It's just a lot different than real strikes and real strike waves. And at its worst, it ends up using workers as props right. rather than uh, creators of their own destiny. Right. I think one of the benefits there is I've, I've been introduced to a couple of trade union activists who were radicalized in that moment. And, and while the, the staffers, you know, the staff and uh, may have intended to only use them as props, they have sort of, uh, as they say, what is it? The, the machines have become self-aware, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which has produced a layer of mostly young and very militant uh, and quickly radicalizing workers who are now thinking very creatively and, uh, you know, aggressively about how to how to move uh, this political moment forward. Uh, so I think even despite the kind of cynicism behind uh, those programs, 
uh, they can produce a lot of interesting and inspiring results. But you've already raised the issue of the the teacher strikes in these red states. Uh, let's 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 move there towards the end of, of the interview because I think that's a really um, not only inspiring but it's a very instructive case that you make here. And again, you know, if if your first book was fortuitous in terms of uh, emerging right around Occupy in Wisconsin and the Chicago Teachers Union strike, this book was incredibly fortuitous because it, uh, it you know you you basically. Uh, I don't see predicted, but you, you you timed your book well with the uh, West Virginia strikes in Oklahoma and elsewhere. So let's let's move there. What's, what's your take on that moment? Uh, what were the crucial components uh, that led uh, to that that upsurge? Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite interesting because when you see these strikes in these uh, red states and then you uh, look at what's happening with the strikes going on in Washington state, it looks a lot like the public employee strike wave of the 1960s and 70s. You have a situation where, you know, no one really would have expected that these teachers would have struck. Striking was uh, illegal or not legally protected in all of these states. Yet what it shows is, and this is something we saw back in the 1960s, is that, you know, sort of when workers are in motion and when enough people are out there at the same time, that doesn't really matter what the law says, or it, it really puts uh, policymakers on the defensive and they want to make the crisis go away. So they were forced to grant concessions in all of these states. I think you see that it was a very rank-and-file-driven initiative, mm-hmm. largely either outside of the weak teacher unionism that existed in these states, or else it was at the grassroots, I think more so in West Virginia than some of the other states. And you really saw that by going out all together, they were able to force concessions. And then that's really the great thing about it is Solidarity is infectious. So when you see teachers saw what happened in West Virginia, then in Oklahoma and Arizona, and then more recently, you know, out in in Washington state where we had these districts all going out on strike, voting to defy the injunction. Mm -hmm. It was quite impressive. As inspiring and exciting as that that strike wave was, a lot of those teachers at the state level found that their victories uh, were short lived or pyrrhic in some senses. In, in terms of you know they they faced massive clawbacks resulting from alleged shortfalls in state budgets and so on and so forth. That's not to say, I mean, at least from my angle, that's not to say that the trade activity was all for naught. But what it does do is it demonstrates uh, certain other kinds of barriers to labor militancy and the success of the labor movement overall. And so that's propelled a lot of these teachers who were most active in these strikes to, to now challenge in, in certain Democratic Party primaries, for example, to try to get in there and change the laws, install more labor-friendly legislators at the least. Um, so, you know, that, that I think that's a really crucial part of, of this kind of synergy that we're going to need to move forward and, and project the labor movement into the future. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the promise uh, as, as we finish up here. Talk to us a little bit about some of the promise of this kind of progressive wave uh, in the legislative arena. Now, I know that you, your, your realm is collective bargaining. You're not so much directly in the lobbying or leg- legislative arena. Uh, but what kind of moves are going to be required in the legislative arena in order to enable this militancy to have more lasting uh, success and to fight these kind of clawbacks that uh, a lot of these teachers uh, experienced at the state level. Yeah. I mean, I'm not much of a legislative guy, right? To, to, just to tell you the truth. Um, although that doesn't mean that I don't think politics are important. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just speaking a little bit more 
broadly. Every account that I've ever read of strikes and striking has been as much about the internal struggles within the unions and worker organizations as it has with just the strike and the employer. So I think a lot of what we found in these teacher strikes is that who's negotiating and who's doing these settlements is important and what sort of structure you build throughout the strike was. So I think a lot of these settlements were, you know, at some point you have to decide whether you're settling or not. I think on a broader sense, I think that the sort of rise of progressive and democratic socialist uh, wing within the younger folks and within the outside the democratic party, but working you know, within it. Mm-hmm. That's great. Cause uh, you know, I think I've, uh, as I've talked elsewhere, we really need these sort of socialist ideas in the labor movement. You know, a lot of the theories about, you know, how we can revive ourselves are going to take the willingness to violate labor law. It's a willingness right. to Occupy property and stuff. So a lot of the energy that was in the Occupy movement, a lot of that uh, that we're seeing express itself uh, electorally nowadays. The labor movement desperately needs that sort of uh, ideas and theories, which really reject the sort of neoliberalism that's been the guiding light, not just for the Democratic Party, but really for the labor movement bureaucracy, which is in many ways has been uh, captive of the Democratic Party for decades. So I think all of this is are, are sort of good developments and are absolutely necessary if we're going to change things. We need a break, not just with the sort of ways that labor's been doing it, but we need to break with the sort of neoliberalism of the Democratic Party, which has really sort of impacted labor and labor theory. Mm-hmm. Right on. I couldn't have said it better myself. That was a great rallying cry. Uh, so just finishing up here, wrapping up, a lot of our listeners are are members of unions. Perhaps they're not. They'd like to organize one. They're in the public sector. They're in the private sector. Um, a lot of folks, uh, millennials in particular, who are finding themselves in the socialist movement today are teachers, various other kind of uh, public sector workers, uh, retail service sector. What's the advice that you would give to these people? What's the main concern what are the types of strategies they should be looking towards? Uh, give them some uh, some advice hearkening back to the militancy of the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, from my study of labor history and also my, you know, sort of decades in the labor movement, I think the, the history is believe in the members and the workers that you're organizing and that you're working with. And I've rarely found a workforce that wasn't willing to fight. I think it's more just a question of having tactics that can win and have a confidence in the struggle. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, being bold, like these strikes in West Virginia wouldn't have worked if they were one at a time. Right, right. If they were one school district at a time, they would have been picked off. So I think by going big and militant, uh, that's how they were able to do it. And I think that's how public employees were able to do it in the 60s. And that's how labor militants were able to do it in the 1930s. So, you know, I think those are the lessons for today. All right, Joe Burns, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody should check out that book, Strike Back. I've already heard that uh, there's a number of DSA chapters. uh, They're doing reading groups on this. Their national uh, labor committee or whatever has taken up uh, your work and uh, they're doing reading groups around it across the country and people should check this book out. Joe Burns, uh, Director of Collective Bargaining for the Association of Flight Attendants. They are very lucky to have you. Uh, thanks for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Thanks a lot, Ed. Okay, take care.
And that concludes this week's A-Side interview with Joe Burns. Thanks again to Joe for joining us. I really enjoyed that interview, and I enjoyed his book. And you should pick it up and enjoy it, too. It's called Strike Back. I've linked to it in the show notes. I've noticed that a number of DSA chapters across the country have been doing reading groups on this book, and that's very, very encouraging. I think that the socialist contribution to the labor movement today must be a return to this militant and oftentimes unlawful strike action that we've seen waving and sweeping the country across the United States and North America and elsewhere. It's going to be really important to pull us out of the doldrums of austerity and neoliberalism, and uh, it's exciting to see socialists leading the way there and learning from the school of hard knocks. I myself have been on strike, and I can tell you that I learned more in that month of being on strike. And of course, the whole process took months and months. But I learned more in that month of being on strike about left-wing politics and organizing than I had in my previous eight years of being a socialist prior to that. And so it's really important. A lot of people are getting schooled at a very fast rate, which is exciting because the challenges ahead are going to require that we up our level of politics and organizing. So thanks again to Joe Burns, everybody. Patrons, be on the lookout for the B-side later this week. Amy's going to be joining us. We're going to be talking about the critical legal theory side of the Kavanaugh hearings. I know people are sick and tired of hearing about Kavanaugh, but this is, an, this is definitely an angle that you have not heard on any other podcast before. So patrons, stay tuned for that. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss out. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member for $5 or more per month. And you too will get access to that B-side that airs towards the end of the week. All right. Until then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...